He's trying to fight the power. <laughs> Praxis, Praxis Cat, you, sh- you should be working. I'm going to knock this computer off your lap. You should be, I should be sitting on your lap. <laughs> well, you want to work now, huh? Okay, okay. The, the only work you need to do is pay attention to me. That's your only hey, right. job. No, that's, really, that's literally what every cat wants. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he read the article about uh, Selena Gomez talking about how she hasn't been on the internet in like five, almost four and a half, five years. I know, man. He's got ideas now. We got a new patron state of loveism. I saw that and I was just, I, I, I did a little, you know, kudos fist pump for Selena Gomez. Yeah, I, that's wild. So yeah, so she said, I think it was like a, a interview on Good Morning America or something that she hasn't been on the internet in four and a half years. And I was like, it's like, man, this should not be an anomaly. Like, honestly, every celebrity, if you are like, if you've got more, more money and comfort than you'll ever need, then you should never have to log on again. You should never be on the Internet again. I I don't understand rich people who uh, and celebrities and shit who just like spend all day posting and spend all day on Twitter. It's like you are not one of us. Go, go, go live your life. If, yeah, if I was a millionaire, I would not ever touch the internet. But I do want to know, like, what not touching the internet actually looks like for her. Does that mean just, does it just mean, like, no social media? Does that mean, like, she's not using Google? Uh, like, email? Like, what's what does that actually mean when she says she's not using the internet? I mean, I guarantee you Selena Gomez has not sent an email in more than five years. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. More, yeah, okay, so, so is she Googling things? Oh, yeah, is her, so... Does does she, does she like like how much is she offloading to her assistant and the team? Well, I'm I'm sure a lot of it. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, this is this is the benefit of being wealthy is you can pay other people to get brain poisoning from online for you. <laughs> right, right. I just can't imagine that. Like, if I have a question, I'm gonna Google it. You know. Or you just imagine her like snapping her fingers and calling whoever her uh, assistant is and like. You know, just the most mundane, dumb, dumb. Like, what was the last thing you Googled? The most, like, dumb, mundane thing that you Googled? Imagine having to shout at someone and having them look that up for you and then explain it to you instead of actually doing that. The last random thing I Googled was who Leonardo DiCaprio's dad was, but then I was <laughs> bored and I didn't even really follow through. <laughs> now, imagine if instead of having to ask Google, you just had an assistant and you were like, Yo, yo, who's Leo? Who's Leonardo DiCaprio's dad? And then in like thirty seconds, they Google it for you and tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's what Google is. I, I need, to, I need, I want more questions answered about that. I need to know exactly what she was and wasn't doing on the internet. I do want to have a sit down with her, Selena Gomez. Come on, TMK. I want, <laughs> yeah, I want more details about what actually means not going on the internet. For the thousandth episode, we'll get her. <laughs> you know what we we just basically explained is like the the probably the sales pitch meeting behind like Alexa. You know, imagine being so wealthy you don't have to look things up on your own. You can ask your assistant to do it for you, and they read you the results. I mean, that's the commercials. <laughs> yeah, every commercial for Alexa is like, imagine if you had a slave. I mean, a robot. Imagine if you had a robot that could uh, deliver things to your home. And in some commercials, imagine if it was a really sexy black slave, I mean robot, that lived in your home. Hello, comrades. It's episode 151 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Today, just fast-moving news week right now for the topic that we're going to be talking about for, for this episode. Just a few days ago, our intrepid reporter Ed had a really fucking good, long-reported uh, article come out on Vice Motherboard looking at uh, Axie Infinity, really asking some, some, some key questions about like, how do these play-to-earn games actually operate, right? Like, what is the kind of, like, political economy going on here? What are the social relations going on here? What's the technology look like? All shit that, honestly, I, I learned a lot because, like, I couldn't be bothered to learn a lot more about Axie Infinity and play-to-earn games beyond what I just kind of, like, picked up through osmosis, um, you know, being in this, uh, you know, paying attention to this area. But, like... Your, your essay really laid it out, I think, in crystal clear detail. And as we'll get into it as well, I mean, like, a 
day or two before, you know, or maybe a little bit longer, but not that long before your 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 essay came out, right? Axie Infinity was uh, uh, hacked for six hundred and fifty million dollars, um, and then you know, right before we started recording this episode, it was announced that. Uh, they were going to be getting another cash infusion from Binance and Andreessen Horowitz for $150 million to help cover some of those losses. Like, this is a really active story right now. But um, help uh, help us through it. Walk us through it. Lay out uh, what, you know, what is Axie Infinity? What are these play-to-earn games? So Axie Infinity is... Uh Imagine uh, the worst elements of Pokemon and then the worst elements of the collectible card games and you merge them together. You get NFTs that are Pokemon that fight each other to generate crypto tokens, which you can then trade for real, not, I mean, not real money. You can trade for other cryptocurrencies and then trade that for real money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there are a few tokens involved, right? I can believe I almost said real money. (laughs) 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 Put a quarter in the jar. (laughs) Right, right, right. So essentially the tokens that, you know, you, these axes or NFTs you buy, there's a market for them. It's a big market. It's it's tens of millions of dollars at this point, but it used to be much larger. We'll talk about that later. There's an NFT market, which you buy them on. There's a secondary token markets, SLP, Smooth Love Potion. This is generated when the axes battle each other, usually in PVE or PVB content. Before we get into that, it's that that fucking name. This is one of many like small indignities that the tech sector levies on us, making us (laughs) say the phrase Smooth Love Potion. It's fucking salt in the wound, insult to injury. My favorite is the um, the DeFi platform, the DAO uh, and DAO ecosystem. There's a DAO, there's a DeFi platform, there's a whole ecosystem around Abracadabra. So it's called Abracadabra, and the native crypto token is called Magic Internet Money. Fuck off. They're dabbing on us, Ed. They're dabbing on us. <laughs> <laughs> That's essentially what it sounds like. I mean, I started watching uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, and hell yeah, like there's so much of that weird, like anime. Like it almost sounds like uh, they came up with came up with something in another language and then translated it to English and just went with the English translation because I, I believe it. Discovering a lot of the weird, a lot of the weird oddities that's mentioned in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is something that was in Japanese and then translated into English. And it, you know, it's like they're the, I don't want to spoil much of it, but it, you know, they do their power ups kind of like they do in uh, dragon ball Z. And I'm just like, I'm thinking to myself, who, who wrote this shit? They're wearing the most ridiculous outfits, right? Yes. <laughs> um, they have uh, a weird uh, proclivity with uh, I, one of my favorite, not favorite, one of the most bizarre parts of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is there's a segment in which it's very clear that like they are, had the team, they teamed up with a Nazi for some reason, but they never call him a Nazi. They just call him like a German or like a right winger, <laughs> but he's very clearly a Nazi in the game. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, not in the game, in the anime. And it's, and they, and they're teaming up to fight like evil vampires. Or, you know, it's, it's really uh, similarly. Um, <laughs> similarly, you know, I think that like with crypto, there's this like vague wink, wink, nudge, nudge with like very far right elements, right? libertarians um neo-reactionaries uh anarcho self self-called anarcho-capitalists i mean you can't really be an anarchist if you're a capitalist but um there's uh you know there's some overlap there so i think there's something to that metaphor you know and i and let's be clear i think everyone in jojo would own crypto every single one of them i love the anime but they're not like they're not left these they're not comrades you know? oh, no, they- <laughs> they're all very much hustle grind mindset people in every arc yeah they'd be doing some fucking weird ass rug pulls on each other constantly yeah you know back to axie so axie has slp the smooth love potion we'll say slp to avoid the indignity and then they have axs which is called axie shard and that's the governance token initially not really sure what the plans are now but initially there were plans to 
have the game eventually be owned by players. Um, and so they created the DAO. This would be the governance token. This governance token, you know, would give you a say in how to run the game, but you can also burn it or spend it to breed more axes. So you can take two axes, breed them, take rare traits, or try to select for certain traits to make more valuable axes that you can then trade or, you know, sell to people. So that's basically the core mechanic of it. NFTs, fighting other NFTs to mine or to generate crypto, which can then be traded for other crypto or stable coins pegged to a US dollar, ideally. Yeah. And so this is like created this whole ecosystem. I mean, so I mean at at, at the face of it, okay, yeah, obviously dumb. Um, nothing that seems particularly uh, or especially nefarious outside of like the baseline of nefariousness and stupidity. I mean, it's like if uh, EA made a crypto game, you know, it just feels like a crypto game made by EA. That's it. That's really, mm. you know, a lot of microtransactions, um, you know, a lot of like ridiculously overpriced in-game features and, you know, weird attempts to, uh, you know, juice up as much money from pe- or juice out as much money from people as possible. But like on his face, it feels pretty innocent, like you said. Yeah, and so, but then the rubber really hits the road when we actually start looking at how uh, how these battles and how these axes and the NFTs and all that actually operate. How the the generation of you know this crypto in the form of SLP tokens and and stuff like you know that's when it starts looking bad. When we start getting into the the you know it's no it's not just the NFT game. Oh, it's Pokemon with NFTs, but it's the play to earn that that. Mm-hmm. Part is what really starts making it, you know, or there's something especially uh, awful going on here. I want to, uh, I want to quote back at you a, a, a really um, a long quote that you have in the article near the top from uh, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, which I think really lays out the vision here of what Axie Infinity um, is currently doing and and how and why it is also the subject of so fucking much investment from venture capitalists and hype from people like uh, Alexis Ohanian. And so he's he said in a in a podcast uh, earlier this year, quote, of people will not play a game unless they are being properly valued for that time. In five years, you will actually value your time properly. And instead of being harvested for advertisements or being fleeced for dollars to buy stupid hammers you don't actually own, you will be playing some on-chain equivalent game that will be just as fun, but you'll actually earn value and you will be the harvester. Now, this, this is... A really revealing quote for a number of reasons. I mean, it's revealing because I think it's laying out the vision for play to earn as the future of, you know, that this is what all games will be, which, you know, not surprising, right? Of course, there's a monopoly strategy here, right? They want to disrupt and monopolize the gaming space. But I think it also reveals a number of things that uh, either cynically uh, either cynical beliefs or uh, really um, soulless beliefs, if they are if they are truly held, about like what the purpose of gaming is, what the how how to properly quote unquote value time. Um, you know, this idea that the only thing that's worth spending time on are things that you are getting direct monetary value for doing that that for some you know it, it's this inability to understand that people play games for example because um play is a really important part of what it means to be human and and playing mm-hmm. games is one of the things that we do that is totally disconnected from uh or 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 should be to varying degrees disconnected from um like monetary uh, incentives or economic transactions or labor. uh, And instead, play is something different. But instead, what Alexis Ohanian and by extension, the play to earn gaming sector uh, really wants to do is, is, is collapse all those differences and say that everything is fundamentally about 
uh, you know, about money and about making money and about producing value and harvesting value um, and, and, and everything else that exists is uh, secondary or subordinated to that primary uh, value or, or, or organizing feature of human life, which is a really soulless way to understand what it means to live and be a person. <laughs> Yeah, 1,000%. Listen, anytime a really wealthy person comes up to you and says, I have a money-making opportunity for you, and that money-making opportunity is not them giving you money, <laughs> just handing it to you, reach for your gun. Because they're going to try to sell you a way for you to be the commodity, right? The reason why Alex Ohanian and his VC fund and A16VC's fund, you know, the reason why all of these financiers want to look at gaming is one precisely as you laid out it is supposed to be a leisure activity the attempts have been made over time to commodify it but the understanding and the drive behind the commodification of it is that it's like a it's an area that people go to and try to retreat from like the constant commodification elsewhere in their life right and it's even though gaming in of itself is still highly commodified right video games are commodified in-game transactions cosmetic items all of these things to operate on commodities the idea or the hope is you can still escape and find free-to-play ways to just uh, burn some time and and the idea here is if we commodify it if we enclose it because that's the logic of all these vcs enclosure um subjecting everything to the market imp imp imposing like ad hoc agreements where they can come in and get a huge cut um that's the goal here right and with people like and like the keyword harvester why it's not gaming if it's a job if it's a job if it's something where you're earning if it's something where um your time is being translated into hustling and optimizing yields on tokens right that's a job you're harvesting you're not you're no longer just enjoying yourself now you have to now you're again in the marketplace right uh, it, I think like a lot of times these people, some, some groups of them are motivated by what they really think is an opportunity to in, in, uh, increase the wealth that some people have along with their greed. I mean, that's always a background thing. I think if you're a VC or a financier, right, you're operating with like greed as a basis or else you're going to fail your mission. Right. But a lot of them also, I mean, it's a, like you said, it's a really depressing vision of human life. And it's also like a dangerous one, right? Because Axie will likely fail for reasons that we'll talk about later. So all these other ventures likely fail, but they don't really care. They're trying, they're blowing all this money so they can build up an ecosystem so that everything after the fact is on their terms and does follow this logic of commodification and privatization and, and, and endless, 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 endless ways for them to suck money out of every transaction that you're now forced to do. Yeah, it, it, it really is about that Web3 vision of making everything commodified, monetized, subject to economic transaction, financialized. I mean, the, the quickest and most surefire way to suck the joy out of anything is to make it a job, to make it something that you no longer do because of leisure because of interest because it's you know it, it's fun um but it's something that you now have to do uh because if you don't do it you can't pay your rent you can't put food in your mouth you can't take care of yourself and other people you know and that's exactly what play to earn gaming is really is really about here you know it's about uh suck you know take, taking something that is meant to be inherently fun and enjoyable and saying well you know uh you'll never work a day in your life if you love what you do um yeah but as soon as you have to do it for work you stop loving it right and you start having to do it um and i think this is what your story really does a great job of laying out as we'll get into is the ways in which you know, as as the the headline for the piece already you know puts it right, the meta the metaverse has bosses too, um, and so the ways in which the thing around like NFT gaming, what makes it you know no no longer just an oddity but something much worse is the way in which uh, they are. Uh, rediscovering capitalism and, and, and rediscovering new ways of doing, uh, you know, as you've described it, sharecropping. Yeah, I think I got into, you know, some people were a little mad and pissy about me using um, sharecropping as the as a descriptor and we're crying that it was hyperbolic or this one person was like, you know, do you even know what sharecropping is? And then I had a debate with them in the DMs. You know, uh, 
I think it's pretty clearly sharecropping. I mean, you know, one of the core dynamics that we can, you know, flesh out pretty easily, right, is that at the peak of the NFT uh, pricing, right, it costs thousands of dollars to buy the three NFTs necessary to play the game. This game was marketed towards people in the Philippines, Venezuela, Vietnam, um, you know, people who the daily minimum wage probably, you know, shakes out to like $24 as it does in, you know, Venezuela and Philippines around, you know, these people are then told, Hey, you can play this game. It'll generate access to a token, which will have exponential yields for you down the line. Right. But you can't afford it. They don't, you don't have $3,000 laying around as the, as the peak increases, right. Or approaches. So scholarship system was made, right? This new system emerged whereby if you were too poor to afford the NFT, you could rent it. And the rental agreement was anywhere from 25 to 75%, right? And that agreement worked for a very narrow period of time when it was precisely at its all-time high. When when ETH, when Ethereum, when Bitcoin, when crypto, when the entire market, all of it was at its peak, is when scholars could have a huge steep cut, but still make something above their minimum wage, right? But that evaporated very quickly. So what do you do now if you're locked into an arrangement where you foregoed or you for what you know, you said, no, I'm not gonna choose traditional employment, you know, I'm because Axie Infinity is gonna be my way to um uh earn a livable income. And I'm instead going to focus all my time and energy on the game, on running multiple accounts. Maybe I'm going to take out loans and try to buy some axes of my own. Then your livelihood is attached very much to this. And you're renting out a productive asset from a landlord or from a rentier, right? Who also may not even be like an actual uh you know capitalist in the in the in the in the sense that we might think where they they have a they have a lot of idle income or discretionary income right that's another thing that i think gets lost in some of the or that got lost in some of the analysis of axie which is that uh you know a lot of these people who are managers again they're still in the global south they're still people who like put in their whole savings thinking that this was going to be the uh, way for them to make a significant amount of money uh, or who pulled money together with friends, right? Basically a bunch of petite bourgeois, like individuals, or you know, so in, in a lot of cases, not even petite bourgeois, still workers, right? Um, you know, who think that, who eke out the minimum that they can have and put it into trying to get some NFTs and uh, on the lie that, you know, they just have to hustle hard enough and wait enough and they will be able to get their return. What ends up happening is a lot of people do end up becoming sharecroppers, right? Because they either took out loans or they're putting their whole livelihood or they're sub or they're putting up all their time on this game that they're still being lied to and told will yield them a return in which they eventually put whatever money they pull from it back into the game to make more money. So this is, you don't need to, you don't need to, you know, have your computer rented out from someone. You don't need to have, um, you know, your internet connection rented out from someone. I mean, all you really need to do for this sort of digital shareholder, sharecropper um, thing to uh, the paradigm to emerge is for you to pour, to, for you to pull enough money out of it to try and reinvest it, or for you to believe that the, the way for you to get out is rent and get trapped into a debt trap, right? Which again, like a lot of people have as a result. So I think that you know, with with Action Infinity, with play to earn games, right? One thing that needs to constantly be remembered is like when people say that you can just walk away. A lot of the times you can't. A lot of the times the people who are playing this game are playing it precisely because they don't really have another option. Maybe they're children. Maybe they're too poor. Maybe they really can only afford an internet connection. Maybe they just don't have time. Maybe they're already working and they're still not making ends meet. But even after they do all of this, they're still earning below minimum wage in their respective countries. And they're still putting a significant amount of their money that is stable into a volatile coin where it could get hacked one day as it did here. Yeah, I want to I want to read out um, from a, a PBS documentary uh, titled Slavery by Another Name. I want to read out their definition of sharecropping. And then and we can see, is this is is what you're describing here, uh, you know, are you being hyperbolic, Ed? Um, so sharecropping is a system where the landlord 
allows a tenant to use the land or, and furnishes other capital in exchange for a share of the crop. This encouraged tenants to work to produce the biggest harvest that they could and ensured that they would remain tied to the land and unlikely to leave for other opportunities. High interest rates, unpredictable harvests, and unscrupable landlords and merchants often kept tenant farm families severely indebted, requiring the debt to be carried over until the next year or the next. I mean, that is, this is literally what you describe in the article in terms of the manager and scholars uh, system, right? I mean, they can call it managers and scholars or they can call it landlords and sharecroppers, but, you know, uh, it, it's just different names for what is quite literally uh, the same exact type of political economic relationship here. I mean, that, that is exactly what's going on. It's, I think, you know, the it, share, calling it sharecropping sounds really hyperbolic because that sounds like something from the past. It sounds like mm -hmm. a really like antebellum, you know, post-American -civil, uh, post Civil War um, kind of a thing, right? Like, you know, before the Civil War, after the Civil War, right? Like, like uh, you know, uh, kind of sounds like around that time period. You know, that was a long time ago, Ed. You know, things like things don't uh, things don't work like that anymore. You know, like you know, we've abolished uh, those kinds of uh, uh, indentured servitude, those kind of debt relationships. Uh, you know, those kinds of hierarchies of domination. Hey, we've abolished those things. No, what we've done is we have reconfigured them, uh, given them new names, given them new methods to operate through new technologies, through new uh, you know, global systems. But at their base, when you look at the actual uh, social relations and the political economy of them, they operate in much the same way way you know yes it you know there may be degrees here that we're talking about but degrees of sharecropping is still sharecropping nonetheless exactly that book slavery's uh, by another name is also a really good one to cite because the whole thesis of that book is that like you said or a core part of that book and the narrative there is that a lot of people do tend to think that we have moved past a lot of the elements of the apartheid system that dominated the united states after the civil war right and that you know we have been into we have had integration and we've had economic mobility um and that uh there has been a large you know sweep forward but then what you actually see is that you know, segregation today is more or less the same as it was uh, before the advent of a lot of the civil rights bills that were supposed to end segregation, or at least allow the state to start implementing programs to end it, right? That you see that there have still been a lot of methods of expropriating wealth from black and brown communities um, that have just simply transformed the mechanism by which they do, but they're still able to steal that wealth. Whether it is by stealing outright, pushing people out of communities or denying them loans to enter a community. You know, there's a, there's a wide variety of mechanisms to, to disenfranchise, to um, dispossess people that also all together contribute to, as you know, as you pointed out, other systems that have still persisted through the years that have either been slavery by another name or take core elements of the slavery system and just wipe it, you know, and, and reapply it to a new context. And I think similarly, right, a lot of people tend to think that just because something is digital, it's free somehow of uh, history, right? It's free of previous social forces and material forces. We've talked at length about why that's not the case. You know, Vina's work on digital piecework, I think is a really good analog here where Vina's talked about how Silicon Valley's goal with the gig economy was to roll back labor laws so that they could realize previously illegal profits by making people no longer have to be paid a minimum wage. And I think similarly here, there's a rollback in crypto and Web3 games to sharecropping and to other exploitative and previously racialized forms of exploitation, except now it's exported to the global south. And the goal here is to um, force people into indentured or, you know, essentially virtually uh, indentured arrangements where maybe there may be no formal lock 
and tie, but it's preying upon people who know who they know will choose that option because it's the most attractive to them, not because it actually is, but because of the PR and the rhetoric and the lies and the bullshit and the fraud that convinced them that the best option is to enter into um, a business model that looks like a triangle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, one of the uh, kind of bizarre things uh, along that lines as well is this, like, this scholarship uh, mechanism, right, of, like, you know, these quote-unquote managers putting forward the capital in terms of buying these, you know, NFT axes, uh, which then, you know, the quote-unquote scholars uh, who are who are granted access to these axes then used to you know battle and breed and you know create more axes or create you know uh, the SLP uh, crypto tokens and stuff um, that this mechanism is not a formal mechanic uh, of the uh, of the of the game of Axie Infinity and of its maker um, Sky Mavis, which is a, a Vietnam-based studio, um, but is instead, as as you've put it, right? Scholarships are not a formal mechanic, but instead a program developed by the community. To to go on, you say you know some players, as you've laid out, simply breed axes or have too many axes, while many, typically players in countries like the Philippines, Venezuela, and Thailand, which together make up more than half of the game's players. Player bases, uh, player base, according to some estimates, can't afford to buy an Axie team. So there you go. It's exactly what you've just laid out here, where it's you know the uh, Sky Mavis, you know the developer of Axie Infinity, kind of you know creates this artificial separation between it and being like, well, this isn't a formal mechanic, right? This is oh, this is grassroots. This is decentralized. This right. is you know the community coming together um, as a as a way to say, you know, well, some people have axes and some people don't. And, you know, some people have capital and some people have labor. And, oh, isn't it wonderful that they have, like, spontaneously come together um, to form this kind of, you know, uh, these these kind of uh, partnerships, as, as, as some managers have put it, right? Well, at the same time, you also talk about how, you know, Axie Infinity's co-founder and chief operating officer, um, Alexander Larson, um, you know, talks explicitly about, you know, you have a quote from him here, right? That managers cuts can go any, any higher with quote ranges from 30% to 75% per scholar based on their monthly rewards. And that's from the, the co-founder of Axie Infinity is like recognizing that this system operates, talking about it, taking part in it um, themselves while also being like, well, you know, it's not a formal mechanic of the game. Um, and it allows as well. I mean, this is one of the things that really struck me with your article. And, you know, you do a lot of reporting. You're talking to a lot of, you know, of these managers and scholars. You're talking to people actually in, you know, in the company uh, and getting really good quotes from them in a way where I think it's one of these cases where they are so, they think that they are so, uh, that they are saints, right? I mean, to put it frankly, like a lot of these managers you talk to think of themselves as saints. They think that they are doing God's work here by providing capital and taking a cut that they are so ready to tell you the most like absurd mask off explicit shit that just obviously cast them in such a horrible light because they have such a like completely wrong view of themselves and and they're so caught up in the ideology here that they don't recognize that it's a bad look right and i just want to quote you know one of the first quotes you have in the article from a uh, axie infinity manager really lays out this absurdity uh, in, in a clear way. Where So here you're quoting from uh, an interview you did with Connor Kinney, an Axie Infinity manager and a YouTuber who documents crypto trades, who, who told you, quote, I can't specifically call it a boss employee. It's more of a partnership, or let's call it a joint venture. One party puts up the capital, and the other puts up the time. The scholar grinds daily. You split the profits. Everybody wins. Ed, everybody wins, man. That's that. It's it's such a parody of the like libertarian anarcho-capitalist view of what capitalism is. Is that it's just that it's not. Uh, one person working for another—that's a high, that's a that's that's domination. Ed. It's a it's a joint venture. It's a partnership. It's win win. 
It's kind of like when a parasite latches onto a host. Like it, it's when when the host keeps eating food and the parasite sucks the blood until the host dies. Right? <laughs> Everybody wins. <laughs> One one of my favorite things also with that guy, Connor Kenny, his video, I encourage anybody who um you know reads the interview to just watch his videos about Axie Infinity because he is pretty detailed and transparent. He views them as employees and he maps out pretty closely the value of the investment over time. He was making the video at which at a point at which the value still had quite a way to plummet, but he had gotten in early enough where he made his money back, and at this point he was just you know, coasting off of residual income and off of these investments, right? He tracks the breeding that he does. He tracks all of the scholars that he has. He tracks um, their performance. He tracks SLP generation. He tracks SLP generation, token value, how much he can earn. He can. He tracks his historical earnings. I mean, it's it's a good detailed amount that is helpful to kind of understand that this is not a game, right? This is investing. This is someone managing their portfolio. This is like very clearly what you, when you really get down to it, play to earn is not actually having fun playing a game. It's micromanaging uh, tokens, NFTs, uh, people you're renting them to, you know, making sure they're giving you your money's worth. That That's not fun. And that's also not um, anything other than, um, like that should make clear that this is not anything other than like financiers trying to give bullshit PR about how, oh, they're liberating you. They're liberating you from employment by making you work for a living for someone in the United States, right? They're liberating you from uh, games without value by making you no longer play games and instead calculate value in your spreadsheet. Videos like that where people closely track their investments, I think are really important to just like really understand that it's not actually a game. I mean, like we, there's all sorts of optimizing that goes on in games. If you play RPGs, you know, if you play any sort of game where stats are involved, um, gears involved, if you put 450 hours into Crusader Kings three, yeah, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) like me, (laughs) yeah, no, if you, if you've, uh, if you put thousands more hours into Crusaders Kings 2, but you pirated it for years so Steam doesn't properly track how much time you poured into that game, you know, there's lots of stuff to calculate and, and optimize. But that is very different from uh, managing a portfolio, right? And no amount of PR and bullshit can really convince me otherwise. And it's even more clear, again, when you just watch their videos and you watch them literally go through their spreadsheet as if they are making a bunch of bets that they're hedging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all it's all financial, right? It is what really struck me was their they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to reject this employee framing. But then when you look at what they're actually doing, it's, uh, you know, it is absolutely business management and return on investment that they're concerned with. This is why I think it is also like, uh, in a really weird way, they are like reproducing and rediscovering capitalism all over again is because they also really do not think that they are doing like, you know, that they are, that they have employees, but then they track them like employees, but they also do not think that they are, you know, extracting profits from these people. They think they're doing like philanthropy. They think that they're helping these people out. It's like the worst possible, um, like small business tyrant, right. Who thinks that like, you know, what they are doing is being the cornerstone of the community. It just happens to be a, a digital community focused around a, an NFT uh, video game. And, you know, you, you have so many of these quotes in here that was just like really, you know, jaw dropping, uh, kind of, you know, like he admitted, right? Like I kept reading these things and being like, look, he admitted, he admitted. <laughs> like another one. It that- really was amazing. I don't know why people tell me these things. <laughs> another one you have is like from, um, 
from this group called Savage Studios FBG, which owns over 600 axes and runs a team of about 200 scholars, aka employees. And as you put it right, the burgeoning YouTuber sees his large returns as a chain as a chance for his scholars to earn big with him and rejects the quote employee framing. Uh, now, quoting from FBG uh, here, he says, I don't portray them as employees. Our agreement on Axie is mutually beneficial. I make money from them using my NFTs and they make money by playing them. Philanthropy is something I have never experienced in any way. The message I get from my scholars on how they have used their profits to pay bills, get a washer and dryer, or in some cases, new teeth for their grandpa, is truly amazing to see, end quote. At its peak, FBG's operation was pulling in $20,000 a month. <laughs> you know? And that, that right there, it's, it's not only, this is what, what makes it so just like, you know, bald face uh, awful, is that it, it's not only that like, you know, yes, we're going to exploit you. Yes, this is a, a capital labor relationship, a boss employee relationship. Yes, I'm going to make massive profits while you make, uh, I'm going to make $20,000 a month while each of you make $22 a month, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, um, you should be thanking me for this. You should be thanking me for the opportunity that I provide you um and and you should know that you know everything here is done out of the goodness of my own heart i i don't have to share any of this uh wealth with you yeah 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 you're working you're doing some labor but i own it i am the owner here um and everything that you get is out of the out of my own beneficence like that it sounds like a parody, but that is exactly how these people are describing the situation and relationships to you, a reporter who they should know better than to say those things to you, Ed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think part of it is because I think, you know, there are some people who truly do believe that what they're doing is philanthropy, and that's because they have a warped sense of relating to other people when they are, when they have power over them. They think that if you are employing a bunch of people and you are uh, imposing strict quotas on them or requirements on them, that it's a process by which they're growing and helping themselves and helping you. And so you're giving them, you're facilitating the chance for them to be a better version of themselves while also making you money. Right. And that is helpful. That's philanthropy. Philanthropy is not giving people money. It's helping them make money. Right. I think there's a group that really do truly believe that. That's not to excuse it and say it's good. That's bad shit. I think, I think, uh, I think, uh, you're to the idea that you're helping that the way to help people is by giving them more skills or making them more marketable or pushing them to further degrade themselves mm -hmm. on the marketplace into the logic of capitalism, as opposed to just literally throwing the money at them and letting them do with it what they will. So they don't have to spend that time doing the fucking job for you. Um, you know, to, to favor the former over the latter uh, is something that really only a boss can do. Right. And that gets into the other group of people. And I think the much larger group of people who just like will bullshit to me, you know, a lot of people, when I report on something, when I talk with them, I mean, like ultimately at the end of the day, it's not just with me, it's with a lot of reporters. A lot of people think that, or a lot of people want to present themselves in the best light possible. Um, but also don't realize how, uh, ridiculous what they're saying sounds, right? You have people telling me and other reporters that Axie Infinity is a good Ponzi because it's growth-based. Yeah, every Ponzi scheme is growth-based. So, like, it's not, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but, you know, or telling me that what they're really helping these people because what, by working for them, they can afford, um, to put teeth in their grandparents' mouths as opposed to just like giving them the money to do that in the first place. Right. Um, these are people who just have there. I mean, they're just, they're really subjects of capital and they have no imagination of how people are supposed to relate to each other, except through these transactional relationships, which is again, another reason why Axie infinity and these play to earn games are so dangerous, right? Because they're normalizing and incentivizing connecting to people as a boss and employee 
as a harvester, as something other than just like another human being that you can connect through mutual aid and solidarity. Obviously, very horrible people at the heart of this, and also a lot, uh, 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 you know, a, an even larger amount of exploited of people being exploited. Um, but let's, can you walk us through a little bit more in terms of like the company itself, Axie Infinity and Sky Mavis? Walk us through the kind of like the cryptonomics here of Axie Infinity, um, like you know how 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 this is actually working in terms of their like you know their their you know the SLP tokens, the um, what is it the Ronin blockchain that kind of you know yeah. is their own blockchain, and also you know leading us up to uh, the recent events now around like the hacks and or the right. hacking and stuff like that. So we talked. So we talked about SLP and AXS. Governance token is AXS. SLP is the token you generate from fighting. AXS is also given as a prize at the end of each season if you rank a certain level in the PvP mode. Um, and these tokens are supposed to be the in-game currency, right? But they are. Um, but this game had in mind a huge ecosystem, and if they did it all on Ethereum's blockchain, it the idea was that it would be slower, it would cost a lot of additional money because you'd have to pay gas fees, right? If you know, if you're if you're transacting a lot, if you're taking up a lot of traffic, if it, you're going to have to pay a higher cost to make sure your transaction clears first. Um, and so to avoid this, they created a side chain, which is another blockchain called Ronin. Um, and this blockchain, the idea was the native cryptocurrency will be Ronin. And all of these coins, AXS, SLP will be, na- will be, you know, easily transactable on this blockchain. It'll allow for faster transactions, cheaper transactions. They introduced a decentralized exchange. So you could quickly trade. You could quickly trade pairs of tokens uh, uh, from one to another, so provided there was enough liquidity. And so the idea mm-hmm. here is like, you know, in a decentralized exchange, um, there are tokens that are paired to one another. Token A to token B. Um, you put in token A, you get token B at a set rate. So long as there's enough of these tokens in, you can contribute to the pool by donating. Um, or by participating in a certain trade, and you get an exchange Ronin, right? Which is the native currency. So all of this was to create its own ecosystem. But then the problem is, you know, you want to create your own ecosystem, but you need the you need the you need collateral for this made up currency that you just invented, right? AXS SLP, they don't really have any real value outside of the Ronin sidechain. Uh, so you need to collateralize them. You need to back them up with something. And so the idea was we would make a, they said, we are going to make a bridge. So think of it as a bank. This bridge will take Ethereum cryptocurrencies and Ethereum assets, lock them up in a smart contract and eject Ronin based crypto assets. You put in Ethereum, you put in USDC, which is United States dollar coin. It's a stable coin pegged to the US dollar. Um, you put in those two cryptos and you get out AXS, SLP, and RON. So this is the core underlying crypto economy at work there, right? As a, And also additionally, a fraction of all the transactions would have revenue redirected into the treasury of uh, the community, right? A hack on uh, Monday, a hack that was revealed on last Monday, but actually happened nine days before that, stole uh, about $600 million worth of Ethereum and USDC, about 400 million of it directly from the players, essentially, and they're backing and they're collateralized or what's supposed to be the collateral for the Ronin based assets. And then 200 million, I think, from the Treasury, according to Larson and reporting uh, to the FT and the Bloomberg. Uh, so this means that a huge amount of money is worthless, essentially, and you can't take it out because there's nothing backing it. It's not actually real, right? Now, after the hack, Two days or three days later, Binance announced, hey, we're going to allow people to tr- trade AXS and SLP, even though it's not backed by Ethereum and USDC anymore. Even though it's technically valueless, 
We're going to allow it to be transacted on our platform. Binance is the largest in the world crypto exchange, right? Why would Binance do this? That was the question a lot of people raised at the time, right? I was talking to Jacob Silverman trying to figure out why the fuck they would do it. Um, you know, his writing partner, Ben, was saying that, um, you know, we're, we're overthinking it. It's just fraud, right? It's not that deep. It turned out to be a little bit deeper because Binance turned out to be an, uh, announced an investment in Axie Infinity, along with A16Z, Andreessen Horowitz, who already invested in Axie Infinity for $150 million, right? So the reason why presumably Binance was allowing trading was because it was going to backstop some of these trades and because it's a new investment, right? But this raises all sorts of questions, right? If the Ethereum, if the assets aren't backed, it feels a little illegal or securities fraud, Gillant, to say, I know your asset is unbacked, so I'm going to invest in you and let you trade it in my platform. <laughs> right? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that but that's where we're at, right? They got $150 million in new funding. Um, they are still short $475 million. And to be honest, and to just give you a quick, you know, run around of the, of the numbers, they are down 45% from daily active users. They had 2.2 million users in November, and now they're about 1.5 million. They shed about 100,000 almost immediately after the hack. NFT trading is down 70, 95%, depending on the metrics that you look at. And the tokens are down about 100, almost 100%. If you don't have enough new players coming in, and if the coins that they're trading or generating are worthless, and the NFTs are lower in value and in trading volume, where the fuck are you going to get the revenue to replenish the coffers of the treasury or to make whole everybody who can't even take out their money in the first place? Because after the hack happened, the bank closed its doors and said, you can't do any transactions. So <laughs> they, they are, I mean, props to them for like hyper accelerating the time, uh, you know, the, the, the time of like creating something and then it becoming immediately fraudulent and having like a run on the bank and then having to fold doors like all this within like just a few years uh, i mean that's innovation Ed. that's the that's acceleration yeah that's the innovation <laughs> was there like any indication that the uh the hack came from within the whole like adage like the call was coming from inside the house like i mean that's of course, of course, people have been wondering whether that's happening. I think there's no evidence right now. The hacker made off with all the money, let it sit in their wallet for a while, and has started faithfully and diligently shipping it off through Tornado Cash, which is this Tumblr service that basically takes crypto, sends it to, you know, mixes it in with a bunch of other crypto transactions and sends it off to new wallets for you in theory, supposedly making it untraceable, right? So this person is diligently trying to uh, hide the money and then they'll probably eventually wash it and launder it. Um, so we're probably never going to really know unless there's at one point in the in the process, there's a honeycomb um, and the FBI forensics are able to walk it back. Because I mean, that's what happened with the, pre- with that, with the couple, with the rap, um, with the woman who called herself the Turkish Martha Stewart. Razzle time. Yeah, Razzle time. Uh, the, the real reason they caught her is because like the second or third step in their money laundering process got seized by the FBI like five years after they did it. And so they were able to look into the records and uh, follow their path from there. Yeah, and just some some other some other details to that. I mean, so right, like obviously, you know, the value of of the SLP token just cratered after the hack, but it was already crashing. Like you you wrote that you know its all time high was in July of you know only thirty nine cents um, per token, right. and by Feb by this past February, uh, it was already sitting at one cent per token, right? So like, you know, that was pre-hack. Like, so the value of, 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 uh, SLP was, was already cratering. I mean, to be fair, to be sure, like it's not SLP that they, that the hackers stole, that would just be, you know, that'd be worthless. Um, they stole, they stole like, you know, the collateral, the Ethereum and the USD backing it up. But like now it just shows that there's, there's nothing sitting behind, uh, behind axes, behind the SLP tokens, there, there's nothing backing it up. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you thought you thought this couldn't get any faker. Uh, this money just got way faker. 
I, 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 it's really hard to communicate the, the sheer level of uh, fucked that everybody is and how fraudulent all of this feels, right? $600 million stolen from a game where every single indicator said that it was dying or at least starting to die. And the sole hope it had was supposed to be an update that didn't launch the day it did. It was supposed to because that's the day the hack was discovered. So it was delayed for another week after it's been delayed for about months. Uh, I'm not really sure, you know, what happens from here other than fraud, I think, because it's like, they said in this deal that they're going to figure something out and that, you know, if they don't figure something out in two years, they'll talk to the community. Right. I mean, you tell me, you think this game's going to be around in two years? Hell no. Uh, not even the, not even the momentum of a 16 Z's capital can keep this game alive for another two years, but there'll be other ones, right? That's the thing here, yeah. right? Like, I think the community of investors and boosters are going to see this as an anomaly, right? They're not going to see it as a, as, as a, an omen of uh, systemic problems. They're going to see this as, as just like an anomaly, a, another kink to work out, right, in the, in the system. Like, they're going to keep trying to push this. And honestly, yeah, they'll keep trying to push it. And some of them I don't even think will care that it happened. I mean, like John Sarlin, he's this business reporter at CNN who wrote this really interesting story. He was at NFTLA um, and he just happened to be invited by someone to the Axie Infinity party and was there with the dude as he found out. Well, not as he found out about the hack, because he claims to have found out about the hack in the morning. The, the, the CEO and co-founder, Psych Out, I think he goes by. You know, he claims to have found out in the morning, but um, what's his name's like um, Jeff Zerlin, I think. He's at this um, like after party for Axie Infinity Faithfuls, and the CNN guy asks him, like, okay, so what's going on? And he's like, you know, it's a hard day, man. It's not good. It's not the sort of thing we we look forward to. And it's like, yeah, okay, but yeah, I get that. What are you going to do about the $625 million that was stolen? He asked people that are around, they said they're optimists, that, you know, this is a growth-based Ponzi, you know, that it's okay, They that the hack really isn't going to be a problem. I mean, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to over-communicate how, how much there's like a mix of hope and cultish fervor around this game, right? Because people, some people really do believe that this is the future. Some people can't believe that they've been screwed over because they've put in so much into this. And other people um, just don't really care and they're in it for the money. And they think that to, you know, to give up is going to, you know, fuck over everything. Right. And so Mm -hmm. other people are also looking at some of the indicators. I mean, Axie Infinity got $1.63 billion in revenue, right. Over the last year from its game. And so some people look at that, they say, Oh, of course this game's going to be around. It's valued at $3 billion after a previous investment uh, round where a 16 Z led the investors. So they say, Oh, like, of course this is going to work out well. Right. But like you said, right, I think they're just going to move on to the other one, right? And this is what we talked about at the top of the hour. The core strategy behind these VC funds like A16Z, like 7.6 or whatever the fuck Alexis Onohanian's firm is called, is to just throw as much money as possible to build infrastructure and to spend the money and to convince other people that the next thing is going to be as valuable or more valuable. I mean, it's similar to Masayoshi Sun's strategy, right? Where SoftBank used capital's weapon, not just to monopolize industries and to generate um, monopoly profits, but because they needed to spend the money. And one way to tell people something is valuable is to spend a lot of money on it. If A16Z leads an investment run for $152 million, and it's like for 5% of your company, then maybe your company is worth $3 billion, right? It doesn't actually matter if it is or not. It doesn't matter if you have revenues that or profits or margins that even remotely indicate it's worth that much, but they invested $152 million for a 5% stake in that round. So it's $3 billion. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that, is, that is quite literally how fictitious capital is created and circulated. I mean, that, that right there, and you stole the word right out of my mouth here, fervor. 
That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. It's all about fervor. That's the only thing. I mean, it's fervor and capital. That's the only thing keeping it going, right? And that's a self-reinforcing cycle of, you know, fervor and capital. And, you know, just before we started recording, I don't know if you guys saw this, Miami unveiled at the, in front of the Miami Beach Convention Center, the crypto bull, which is like, a, yeah. it's a, it looks like a transformer, like cyberpunk version of the Wall Street charging bull bronze statue. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's like, this is it, right? This is the, the animal spirits, the totems uh, of the crypto fervor, you know, embodied right here in the, you mm-hmm. know, the Miami bull. Um, and it, it's absurd. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a cult, right? Just taken with, you know, this is, this is what it, you know, it's bullish. It's going to go on forever despite the, and this is what's required for this kind of shit. Cause if you actually look deeper in, you know, if you, if you consider for a second, how like Axie infinity was organized around like their side chain with the Ronin and the way in which that, from what I understand the hack happened because like there was like nine computers um, operating this like Ronin sidechain, making, you know, making it technically decentralized in that way. But all you had to do was like take over five of those computers to have a majority and then be able to like, mm-hmm. you know, take control of the chain, right? Like, like that's such horrible fucking OPSEC. It's so bad. And the whole reason they had to do the side chain as you laid out is because if they tried to build it on Ethereum, Ethereum is so slow and so expensive that there's no way you could run a fucking video game off of it, right? Uh, And and so it gets back to a point that Molly White made on our episode and also on Tech Won't Save Us and Trash Futures episodes with her. Um, But that like a lot of this is about trying so desperately to use blockchain in instances where it's like the worst possible tool. Right, it's not the best tool. It doesn't meet any metric of technical superiority or anything like that. Um, it is instead a purely ideological play powered by fervor. That's like, well, we will try. We will. We will crowbar this blockchain into this thing despite the fact that it's going to make it a very fragile system, a very insecure system, uh, a very uh, wasteful uh, system, but we will do it nonetheless because we are ideologically committed to blockchain, right? And that's what it all comes down to. The, the irony on, on which their, their crypto bull in Miami is not lost on me, the acceleration in which the climate is going to fucking make the seas rise and overtake Miami. And before we know it, that crypto bull is going to be underwater and crypto will play a part in that. Before we got on the recording, I was reading an article by one of my colleagues, Maxwell Stratch, and, um, who y'all should read. He, if you're listening, he does really good um, reporting on crypto as well. I mean, the whole team does, but he he's put out two articles today that I really enjoyed. Um, and one of them was talking about how people were getting emotional, uh, they said, at the, at the uh, bull with laser eyes being unveiled. At the Bitcoin conference, saying that it's going to be the most inf- most famous, iconic statue in the world, right? Miami is also the city where they launched Miami Coin, which, if I remember correctly, is down by some ridiculous double-digit percentage and has lost everyone who bought in money, as has every attempt to do this fucking city coin right? bullshit is, right? But that doesn't matter, right? None of it matters because as we've talked about, as so many people have talked about on the show, as so many comrades on other shows as well have talked about, have written essays about, all of this bullshit is self-referential hype. All you need to do is on to the next one. On to the next one. Doesn't matter that there's a graveyard of corpses and projects behind you. You just need to keep making them. The more you make, the more the next one will be worth. Yeah, you just have to. You have to keep uh, outrunning your own failures, right? That's what. It, that's mm-hmm. all. It, that's all it comes down to. You just have to. You know, don't don't look behind you. Don't look behind you. You just got to keep look ahead and keep your feet moving uh, and hope it doesn't catch up with you. It always does at the end of the, you know, at the end of the day, right. in the long run, it does catch up to you, but you know, hopefully you can trip enough people and leave them holding the bag. You know, that that's really the strategy here. 
Exactly. And, you know, maybe it'll work. Maybe it will work for Andreessen Horowitz and Brian Armstrong and, um, you know, every single motherfucker who wants to throw money at anything that smells like um, crypto, right? Maybe it'll work. Hopefully it doesn't. <laughs> and hopefully it doesn't take us all down with it. On that note, yeah, it's a great, great, great place to to wrap up and end this episode. Um, you know, amazing reporting as always, Ed. Everybody read that. You know, finally understand what play to earn games are, uh, and 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 why they they have they have now they have gone way beyond just an, uh, another oddity of the Web three uh, ecosystem, but are yet again another instance of uh, of a of a truly awful exploitative, dumb, uh, fragile system that, you know, just just a, a house of cards built on top of sand. Um, and, and so with that, thank you all for subscribing. As always, appreciate your support. Uh, we'll see you all next week with, uh, with more TMK to come. Until then, later. Adios.